A deadly tornado with 170 mile per hour winds ripped through Lee County, Alabama this past Sunday. At least 23 people were killed in Beauregard, Alabama, where the county sheriff says it looks like someone took a giant knife and scraped the ground. And on Monday morning, Alabama Governor Kay Ivey got a phone call. About 8.15, President Donald Trump called my cell phone. He wanted to know about the devastation. During a press conference, Ivy says she told the president there was a lot of property damage in her state and a tragic loss of life. She also told Trump she was working with the Federal Emergency Management Agency to get him to expedite aid for recovery. And we'd sure appreciate your support. Soon after, the president tweeted, FEMA has been told directly by me to give the A-plus treatment to the great state of Alabama and the wonderful people who have been so devastated by the tornadoes. This is Code Switch. I'm Shereen Marisol Meraji. And I'm Gene Demby. Maybe you're wondering what disaster recovery in Alabama has to do with race. Well, a lot, if federal disaster aid programs have anything to do with it. An NPR investigation found white Americans and those with safety nets often receive more federal dollars after a disaster than people of color and Americans with less wealth. We came to that conclusion after months of reporting and an analysis of previously unreleased FEMA data. In Lee County, Alabama, where tornadoes just reduced homes to splintered wood and to rubble, 70% of the population is white and 23% is black. The story you're about to hear can serve as a case study on what may happen there. It comes to us from NPR's Rebecca Hersher, who worked on the NPR investigation into federal disaster aid. And she's been on the Code Switch podcast before, so you've heard her. And this time, Rebecca takes us to Houston, Texas, and introduces us to two families, one black, one white, who lost everything after Hurricane Harvey. The two families are the Papadopoulos's. Okay, uh, John Papadopoulos, and I live on uh, 10723, well, lived, right? Yeah, uh, 10723 Bayou Glen Road. John is a family guy. Two kids, a wife, works at Microsoft. The second family is the Evans family. Janice Perry Evans has three kids, works at the post office. I love my job. I'm one of the people that, the rare people that love their job. <laughs> you know, sometimes we make people day. Janice and her family rent a house on the east side. John and his wife own their house on the west side. They bought it back in 2007. And within a couple years, the floods began. So our house flooded, yeah, so we flooded four times in a decade. Yeah, so our house flooded in 09, and then um, 2015 and 2016. And then the big one. August 2017. Good morning, everyone. Let's get straight to the breaking news. Harvey provoking an unfolding flooding disaster in America's fourth largest city, Houston, Texas. The morning the storm arrived, both families woke up to more than a foot of water in the house. John and his wife carried their sleepy children to a neighbor's house, and they eventually went to a hotel. Janice's family waded through chest-deep water until they were rescued by a dump truck. They ended up at the convention center downtown. Both of their homes were destroyed. My house was, it looked like a washing machine inside. I mean, we lost 99% of everything. If you guys had seen what the neighborhood looked like, we lost all that in just one day. We lost everything. And when families lose everything in disasters, they turn to the federal government for financial help. But when the Evans and Papadopoulos families started applying for federal aid, they had radically different experiences. Experiences that are emblematic of a trend. 
widening inequality after disasters exacerbated by federal disaster spending. We'll start with the Papadopoulos family. Right away, a lot of things went right for them. John's job was really helpful. I didn't have to use any time off. Technically, my manager is like, don't even worry about it, man. Just take care. We got you. With John's wages secure, they turned their attention to applying for federal money. First, they applied online for assistance from the Federal Emergency Management Administration, FEMA. FEMA gives grants. The money doesn't have to be paid back. The Papadopoulos family got $30,000 because they owned a home that had been destroyed. The second place they applied was the SBA, the Small Business Administration. In the wake of a disaster, SBA provides low-interest disaster loans to homeowners, renters, businesses of all sizes, and private nonprofit organizations. The Papadopoulos family got a $25,000 low-interest loan. A few weeks after the flood, the family moved into a temporary rental house. But there was still the question of what to do with the flood house, as their six-year-old calls it. Repair it? Sell it? I didn't touch the house for months. I just left it there full the whole bit. That water sat in there for two weeks. I'm not bringing kids into it. The heavy metals alone, you're not going to freeze or bleach them out of that wood. <laughs> I don't care what you think. In the end, the money from FEMA helped them pay to knock the house down. And there's one more longer-term way that FEMA could help. The family has applied for a buyout. They want the federal government to buy their empty lot and turn it permanently into open space. So you still own the lot? I do. The local flood control district says it's likely that properties like theirs will get offered buyouts eventually, if the owners can wait until the money is available, which could take years. But the Papadopoulos family can wait. They're doing okay financially. They're looking for a new house to buy. Meanwhile, the Evans family has had a totally different experience. For the first few days after the storm, the family slept at the convention center. And as the relief at surviving wore off, Janice had one big concern. My main thing was I had nowhere to lay these, put these kids to lay their head. That bothered me so much. So when her coworker offered a spare room, she took it. Even though it was one room for the whole family, even though when she put food in the refrigerator, it disappeared somehow, even though it was a 45-minute drive from her kid's school and from her work and her car had been destroyed in the flood, she took the room because she felt like she had nowhere else to go. And then, like the Papadopoulos family had, she started asking the government for help. I applied for everything, and they gave me, the first time they gave me $2,666 to get somewhere to live. $2,666 specifically for housing. In Houston, it would have been enough to cover a deposit and first month's rent on a new place. But Janice needed that money for something else. I had to go to work, and I had to get the boys back and forth to school. So I took that and put it for a car. She used the money for a car. And then, with her immediate transportation under control, she called FEMA back to see about applying for more money for housing, and got reprimanded. When I talked to one of the representatives, that's what they told me. They, some of them was kind of rude. Some of them felt sorry for me because I would be crying. I would be crying about, hey, I have nowhere to go. I don't have no money. You guys um, you're not helping me like I thought I was going to get the help that I was going to get. FEMA gives grants for specific uses so it can keep track of who's been paid for what. That money was supposed to be for housing. The system was too rigid to handle Janice using it for something else. FEMA didn't bar her from reapplying for housing money, but after the scolding, she did not reapply. 
And this entire time, Janice never missed a shift at the post office. Often, she worked six days a week. But her paycheck just wasn't cutting it, and her coworker said the family needed to move out. So she applied for a low-interest SBA loan. SBA will conduct a credit check before scheduling an on-site inspection to determine your total verified losses. Janice says when they checked her credit score, it was too low. She didn't qualify. Time was running out. A FEMA representative suggested she see about getting help from the Department of Housing and Urban Development, which required using her day off to go to an informational class. But she says she didn't qualify for that either because her income was too high. It was like every time I tried something, it was an obstacle in the way. Six months after the flood, Janice did the only thing she felt she could. She moved into a rental house that's more expensive than her old place and smaller. And the Evans family is not alone. Recovery for vulnerable families look a lot different than it does for more affluent neighborhoods. Kathy Payton is the executive director of the Fifth Ward Community Redevelopment Corporation in East Houston, just a couple miles from where Janice lives. She says she's watched low-income families struggle to apply for federal aid because of all of the barriers that Janice ran into and more. They don't always have all the paperwork. They don't always have a tax return. They don't always have the last two pay stubs. They don't always have driver's license. They don't always have all of these things. As a result, Peyton says she's watched richer, whiter parts of Houston recover more quickly. Private insurance accounts for some of that, but she thinks it's also because they were more successful at getting federal money. And national research backs that up. Junia Howell is a sociologist at the University of Pittsburgh. Howell is one of a handful of researchers who are taking a close look at who gets public money after disasters and who doesn't. And a pattern is emerging. After disasters, rich people get richer and poor people get poorer, especially when the federal government steps in. We see these same patterns of wealth inequality being exacerbated in communities that receive more FEMA aid. But that's particularly true along racial lines, along lines of education, as well as homeownership versus renting. Richer people, white people, they're more likely to be homeowners. And those same people are more likely to get aid after a disaster, in part because of programs like buyouts that specifically help homeowners who have lost their houses. Poorer people, people of color, people who are more likely to rent, people arguably who need cash the most after a major disaster are less likely to get it from the federal government. NPR analyzed more than 40,000 FEMA records from one federal disaster aid program, Home Buyouts, like the one the Papadopoulos family are hoping to get and the one the Evans family doesn't qualify for. We found that most of them were in neighborhoods where the population was more than 85 percent white. David Marstead runs the buyout program for FEMA and says it's working as designed. He says every potential buyout is assessed using the same basic criteria. Buyouts have to be technically feasible. They have to be cost-effective. They need to be aligned with providing a risk reduction for, for the community. Last year, Congress agreed to increase FEMA's funding for so-called risk reduction. But it's largely up to local governments how to use that money. For example, to build flood walls, update drainage. I think a general conclusion would be there will be more buyouts, but I guess that's what, you know, we'll see how that unfolds in the future. Sociologist Junia Howell says that trend is a wake-up call. It, it's disturbing, like deeply disturbing, that we are spending billions of dollars a year and those billions of dollars are adding to our inequality. And to me, calls for a deep reinvestigation into FEMA aid. 
If inequality is being exacerbated a little bit now, she says, it will be exacerbated a lot more in the future. Climate change is driving more extreme rain in most of the country, which means more and more flood risk, which could mean more families like John's and Janice's. Take John. Within a year after the flood, his family was fine. I still got money in my pocket. You know, I'm not looking for a bunch of the handout stuff. I had some. I didn't like it. (laughs) Really? It being specifically federal disaster aid. When he looks at all the federal help his family has gotten since the storm, he is grateful and a little uncomfortable because he knows that other families have not gotten the same leg up. Families like the Evans. So it's a struggle now. It's really a struggle now to stay afloat. I went to a bankruptcy lawyer and I paid him to pay down. I'm going to go ahead and file bankruptcy and get rid of some of these debt. If the storm hadn't happened, do you think you'd be facing bankruptcy? No, because it wasn't that bad. It's not just the storm itself. It's everything that's happened since. The higher rent, the new car payment, the hours and hours spent filling out applications for money, most of which it turned out wasn't meant for families like hers. And Janice's job as a mail carrier means she sees a lot of other neighborhoods. She's watched other areas, other families recover more quickly. And that's where the money went to, to out there, rich people. It's not fair, but you know, that's just how America is. It's not right. But most of the time, white people get the advantage before we do anyway. So it's like, we already know. (laughs) That's just how it works. If she'd gotten more money, she says, she would have moved. Bought a house on higher ground. Rebecca Hersher, NPR News. That was NPR's Rebecca Hersher reporting from Houston, Texas. And you can search for FEMA buyouts in your zip code or any other part of the country by going to npr.org. All right, so you just heard the story about race and place and disaster recovery. Okay, so what happens when billions of dollars are spent to protect a town before a disaster strikes? Everybody wins, right? Wrong. More on that after the break. Support for this NPR podcast comes from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Family owned, operated, and argued over since 1980. Proud supporter of independent thought. Whether that's online, over the air, or in a bottle. More at sierranevada.com. Support for NPR and the following message come from Celadon Books. It's not the passage of time that makes growing older so much harder than it has to be. It's ageism. In her book, This Chair Rocks, a manifesto against ageism, Ashton Applewhite debunks myths, dismantles the dread, and urges us to mobilize against the prejudice that pits us against our future selves and each other. Visit thischairrocks.com to learn more. This season on Invisibilia. Should we empathize with our enemies? Femoids should f***ing die. Is it okay to have machines control our emotions? I should be kind of creeped out, but at the same time, I'm like, well, thank God I live in this day and age. No easy answers, just the right questions. Invisibilia, back on March 8th. Shireen. Jean. Code switch. 
We're heading east now from Houston, Texas to Boundbrook, New Jersey. According to the most recent census data, Boundbrook's a little over half Latinx, and it's about an hour away from Manhattan by train. And Boundbrook's got a new taxpayer-funded flood system, which developers love, but it also has some people in the Latinx community nervous. NPR's Robert Benincasa takes us to New Jersey. One way to understand the immense flood control system built around Boundbrook is to climb to the top of it. So we're walking up a big grassy berm here. This is like, how, this is like maybe 30 feet of grassy berm, yeah. almost straight up, right? Yeah. From the top of the hill, town councilman Abel Gomez and I can see water through the trees on the other side. It's just one of several smaller bodies of water, plus the Raritan River that flank Boundbrook. And there's what? What body? Of and this is actually the Bound Brook. So the town is actually called Bound Brook because it's bound by brooks. There's brooks throughout all the perimeters of the town. And then there's a brook that runs right through the middle of the town. The hill we climbed is no ordinary slope. It's a flood levee. It's part of this town's defense against climate change, which has been making New Jersey warmer and wetter. The levees, along with a system of gates and pumps, are supposed to protect Boundbrook and other nearby towns from the kind of flood that ripped through here in 1999 after Hurricane Floyd. And ever since then, businesses have been wary of coming here, knowing they could lose everything in a major storm. Without flood control, it was only the next natural disaster before you were wiped out. But 20 years later, if there were a climate change lottery with public funding as the prize, you could say Boundbrook hit the jackpot a sweeping $650 million flood control project whose local portion was completed in 2016. Now, developers are betting tens of millions of dollars that new apartments, restaurants, and other amenities, just over an hour by train from Manhattan, will attract new residents to this town of 10,000. In a ride around town, Councilman Abel Gomez showed me old industrial properties that will be torn down for hundreds of new luxury apartments and restaurants. But the town's own research suggests the newer apartments may be too pricey for some in the Latino community, who make up about half of Boundbrook's population. A local analysis found that those in the most heavily Latino neighborhoods had the lowest incomes and the highest housing costs as a percentage of income. How does the Latino community figure into these plans? We hope, we really, really hope that the the Latino identity that's here remains here in fact, becomes part of that future vision of this town. Because that's key to this. It sets us apart. Francisco Morales Mora, who emigrated to Boundbrook from Costa Rica in the 1990s, owns a Central American restaurant downtown. He says more development will be good for business and will make the town more vibrant. But he worries about affordability. The new apartments that are already here, the ones that are already built, they're too expensive for the people of Bound Brook. The people of Bound Brook are poor. And unless the new ones are cheaper, people will leave. Morales' concerns aren't new. In 2004, the Justice Department sued the town, saying its housing policies discriminated against Latinos. And for years, Boundbrook's housing and development practices were regulated by a consent decree. But if Boundbrook's safer status with the flood control system ends up favoring the wealthy and leads to gentrification, that wasn't the project's intent. 
says Robert Greco, the project's manager for the Army Corps of Engineers. We're protecting a highly dense area. Those are not what you would consider wealthy neighborhoods. Well, at least they're not wealthy now. And Greco acknowledges with some pride that his project is changing the town. They're really bringing the area up, so to speak. There's businesses that are coming in. There's a lot of reconstruction work. And it's beautiful, actually. Beautiful or not, the pricing out of some current residents may be already underway. Those new apartments Morales mentioned? Some one-bedroom units rent for over $1,600 a month. That's $200 more than the town's median rent. But as a place adapting to climate change, Boundbrook is hoping to fend off the floods. And in 2011, the partially completed flood control system stood up to Hurricane Irene. That's Robert Benincasa from NPR's investigations team reporting from New Jersey. And these stories were brought to us by NPR series Climate Change, Winners and Losers. All right, y'all, that's our show. Please follow us on Twitter. We're at NPR Code Switch. We want to hear from you. Our email is codeswitch at npr.org. You can always send us your burning questions about race with a subject line, Ask Code Switch. And for our regulars, we just wanted to give you a heads up that we had a really good team retreat last week where we were thinking of new and exciting ways to inform and entertain you. 52 weeks a year, <laughs> which is a lot. That's so, a whole lot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so sometimes we bring you stories from our colleagues who are also working on race coverage like we did today. And remember, you can always stay informed with what we're doing by signing up for our newsletter at npr.org slash newsletter slash code switch. Speaking of staying informed. OK, so, you know, your boy Barack Obama has been out there doing that finger waggy thing he does towards black people <laughs> and that black people love for some reason. So next week, we're going deep on the politics of respectability. I'm looking forward to that. This episode was produced by Meg Anderson and Kumari Devarajan. It was edited by Bob Little and Nicole Beamsterboer. Barbara Van Workham contributed to the reporting. And a shout-out to the rest of the Code Switch team, Leah Danella, Sammy Yenigan, Steve Drummond, Karen Grigsby-Bates, Adrian Florido, Maria Paz Gutierrez, and Kat Chow. Our intern is Tiara Jenkins. I'm Gene Demby. And I'm Shireen Marisol Miraji. Vizio. Peace. Life Kit is like that friend you go to in your toughest parenting moments. So my answer was, do you believe Lucas? Oh, you're so Socratic. Life Kit for Parents, an audio guide from NPR and the experts at Sesame Workshop. Check it out in Apple Podcasts or at npr.org slash lifekit.